Before I let that steam engine get me down, I'll die with the hammer in my hand. Before I let that steam engine get me down, I'll die with the hammer in my hand. Welcome to the American Civil War Podcast Episode 3, The Transportation Revolution. Despite the apparent centrality of slavery in the history of the Civil War, well, that may be a particularly political or cultural view of America. One alternative element, engineering or economic-based, looms far more significantly in the global story. The early and middle 19th century saw the world change more than it had ever changed before, or perhaps ever will change again, possibly even more than in the earlier mid-20th century, if you can believe it. To compare historically, despite the great advances in science and mathematics in the 18th century, Life for almost everyone went on largely as it had in the 17th, or even much earlier. While changes did take place, these mostly improved life at the margins. For example, in the 18th century, and this means the 1700s in case that is unclear to anyone, instead of buying a flax or woolen garment from a local hand weaver, Europeans increasingly bought cloth or clothing made in ever larger factories. While the textile industry had long been mechanized and international in scope, it became increasingly centralized in specific regions and powered by early industrial technology, itself ever improving and developing in the hands of skilled machinists. Most of this improvement occurred in England, which was particularly well situated to take advantage of the developing technology and controlling the export of raw materials and finished products alike. Other improvements in the 18th century from a European perspective included the increasing availability of sugar, coffee, chocolate, tea, spices, and other international goods in the diet. Basic steam engines emerged and the development of calculus. Uh, there were also many discoveries in chemistry and the development of iron foundries on a scale never before seen. But for one great reason, all of these developments impacted life less than one might think. That reason is simple. Transportation and communication technology had not greatly improved. The 18th century saw sailing ships covering the globe but they were still limited by the annual winds. Almost every river could be followed downstream, but going upstream remained much more difficult, often slow and expensive, if it was possible at all. On land, travel was limited to wagons or carriages, a trusty steed, or the traveler's own two feet. People may do, of course, and the very wealthy could make arrangements to their convenience then as now. But as often as not, travel for kings and peasants alike appears agonizingly slow in retrospect. Not surprisingly, this made moving goods similarly slow and very expensive. If, by chance, you were shipping from one seaport to another, it might be relatively cheap, since you had the advantage of the least costly options. Shipping rates were quite low for a ton of dry goods over common shipping lanes, and those lanes stretched from Canton to London to Manhattan and back again. But moving goods in this manner meant following the winds, and therefore many voyages could only be taken once in a year. Worse yet, it meant that sending an order for goods and actually receiving them could take as long as two years. And that was assuming no step along the way wasn't delayed. And yet that still was not the worst of the problems by far. Once those goods reached land, the costs quickly rose to astronomical heights. Moving goods a mere 20 or 30 miles on land was as costly as shipping them a thousand miles by sea. Now, trade goods could and did slowly trickle even deep into the countryside, 
as whatever spare transportation happened to become available could always carry a little extra here or there until goods arrived at places far from the bustle of harbors. Yet in practical terms, most cities could only draw resources from and sell to a small region around the urban center, and rural areas remained somewhat isolated. Now, of course, river shipping was another reliable option, and still far cheaper compared to wagons or pack animals. And it was here that the first steps on the transportation revolution would begin. River shipping is so important that human civilization effectively began around it, and it remains economically important even today. Rivers were often the only way to connect large regions together before the advent of industrial mechanization, and it's no coincidence that most of the world's great cities were located on rivers with a good way to access the sea, including London, Rome, Paris, and New York, and we could easily bring up numerous examples from the Middle East or Asia. The oncoming transportation revolution affected Europe as well as the United States, of course, and it slowly emerged into the rest of the world as well. Yet in America, it had a particularly powerful impact, which was unmatched anywhere else on the globe. There are several major reasons for this. First, America possessed vast inland spaces that could be profitably joined to the global commodities market, and Americans were a highly commercial people ready and willing to join. Second, by the grace of fortune, the geography of the United States gave numerous areas good access to water resources. And many of these major river systems happen to lie almost within arm's reach of one another. Third, since the nascent United States with both very productive per man hour of labor and rapidly growing in population, transportation improvements had an unusually high potential return on investment, even though, of course, well, investors' dreams still frequently outpaced reality. The emergent transportation reality that would come to define the United States began with canals. As mentioned above, the United States was blessed with a rich array of water resources, and connecting these in new ways appeared an obvious gain to those who identified the opportunities early on. The state of New York took the lead, and some of its legislators proposed the Erie Canal practically before the Revolutionary War had ended. By connecting and extending waterways, New York could create a continuous system of transportation stretching from New York City to Albany and then to the westward edge of the state, including connections to both Lake Ontario and Lake Erie, hence the name of the canal. The advantage of canals, as opposed to most natural rivers, was that they were controlled waterways from the beginning. A current existed, but in most canal systems these were relatively weak and allowed boats to go against it quite easily, in the early days often being hauled along by horses or mules on the bank. Following this, canals rapidly sprouted all over the United States, as a burgeoning Old Northwest Territory, including Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, was settled and transformed in new states, the citizenry also created canals for their own use. That purpose was primarily the movement of heavy goods, particularly agricultural products. Midwestern wheat, corn, and beef were soon on sale from New Orleans to New York. The vast expansion of the market, of course, also made it easier to import manufactured goods far into the hinterland, which sparked the growth of the broad consumer economy we take for granted today. And everyone along the way benefited from rapidly falling prices for nearly everything imaginable. The rapid financial return on the Erie Canal turned into a surprising boon for its backers, but an even bigger one for New York City. While the city already had good harbors and a central location for the original 13 colonies, and hence made sense as a great center of trade, 
The opening of the canal grew the city's fortune in a way never before imagined, and it inspired envy and efforts from competing cities and states to catch up, which created major regional economies that would prove extremely important in the years to come. But the Erie Canal's importance doesn't end there, as it would spur two more changes along the way. To begin with, as it turns out, one Robert Fulton would become intimately involved in the canal project, and he would take the lead in bringing mechanized transportation to the Americas, and ultimately the world. Fulton's story is much like that of Eli Whitney, just with its own peculiar twists. Both were northerners, born shortly before the Revolutionary War, who used their mechanical talents to develop new innovations, but with even more wild turns in Fulton's case. A Pennsylvanian by birth, Fulton happened to be cordially connected with both Benjamin Franklin and the famous painter Benjamin West, meeting the latter on a trip to England in 1786. Fulton supported himself in England by painting, but his passion for canals and mechanics grew rapidly, and he studied British technology intently. This wasn't a new hobby for him. Fulton had built devices such as rockets or paddle boats even as a child. But while in England, Fulton came to a lifelong love of nautical improvement, both in the vessels themselves and the bodies of water in which those vessels swam. The ocean being quite large enough and the automobile not yet invented, Fulton envisioned instead a network of canals crisscrossing Britain, France, and America, and he cared enough to publish the idea in pamphlets. These ideas were overly ambitious, even for an age that sought to conquer physical space, but the enthusiasm would carry Fulton forward to new successes. While visiting England and France, Fulton also encountered the first primitive steamships. These extraordinarily basic devices, by our standards, were ungainly and extremely inefficient, but they pointed the way towards a future Fulton sought to make his own. And almost as an afterthought, Fulton developed the world's first practical submarine, the Nautilus. This innovation worked surprisingly well given the limits of the day's technology, being capable of covering a distance of several miles while some 30 feet underwater. It was, however, never put into military use despite the ongoing wars of the French Revolution, as first Napoleon and then the British government saw no practical way to implement its use. Yet we will see this concept resurrected much later on in this series, and see the influence of steam power on naval power. Fulton dropped that idea, but not the larger concept of using mechanical power on water. He began promoting steamboats to both the U.S. and British governments, and analyzed many existing steamship designs to improve upon them. I would like to take a moment here to point out that many individuals had already put their minds to the development of steamboats. Britain, France, and the United States were all early pioneers in putting the technology together. The most important and relevant names are Patrick Miller and William Symington of Scotland, as well as Claude de Geoffroy and John Fitch. Numerous other names were involved in turning the idea into the reality, but for our story, those are the most prominent figures that Fulton himself would likely have been aware of, and whose designs he may have examined in detail. The problem these pioneers faced, strange as it may sound, was economics more than technology. These men had all successfully created steamships, but they had been unable to turn the idea into something financially profitable and, well, mechanically practical to operate. Like it or not, that failure made it rather difficult to keep developing steamships for the future. This was Fulton's great contribution, since in addition to being an inventor, he turned out to have solid business savvy. Upon returning to America in 1806, Fulton promptly built his own steamboat, 
and began service from Albany to New York City the following year. He would later follow on the success by creating the world's first steam warship, pushing the United States to the forefront of naval technology, and that was after he had already built an another steamboat to travel the Mississippi's most profitable waters, from the upper Ohio to New Orleans and back again. This represented a huge advance in economic opportunity for a sizable proportion of the nation, as the mighty Mississippi exported huge cargoes not only from the South, but also the Midwest. Yet it was not an easy river to travel upstream. Quite often, uh, cargoes were floated downriver, and then the boats were simply broken up or sold off for whatever the value the wood in them held. But following this, steam technology continued to improve year by year. And by the time of the Civil War, many naval vessels, both civilian and military, boasted steam engines. However, these burned coal by the ton, and sailing did remain a necessary part of travel in this era. Steamships, primarily operating in freshwater, could often rely on continued replenishment of their boilers with coal or even wood. Out at sea, however, fuel is often saved for windless days or important maneuvers. Nonetheless, Steam quickly proved itself a necessary part of the military environment, and no serious warship could do without. Support ships or commercial vessels might not always sport steam engines, or might, as we mentioned, limit them only to calm spells or navigating around harbors. Yet even there, the steam engine rapidly became indispensable. American shipbuilders competed at the bleeding edge of technology with major European yards in this race, as everyone saw the obvious benefits, which of course led to rapid improvement. For example, the first steamship to cross the Atlantic, the Savannah, set out from its maiden voyage from the city of the same name in 1818, just a decade after uh, Fulton's explosion onto the world stage. But of course, like most ships of the era, she actually used sails as much as steam. The Savannah, like with most early steamships, used paddle wheels in the form of, well, giant round wheels mounted on the sides of the ship. Paddle wheels worked well for their time, of course, but numerous inventors were already reaching towards propeller or steam screw designs instead. By the end of the 1830s, this new technology was already proving more efficient than paddle wheels, and it held many advantages in terms of ship layout as well. Now, I would have to do an entire session just on the life of, and careers of the many individuals involved in developing it, again, mostly in Great Britain. But I will note Francis Smith, Henry Wimshurst, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, himself perhaps the greatest engineer of the age, and last but definitely not least, John Erickson. Erickson, soon to move to the United States, will come to play an even larger role in ship design at the dawn of the war. The steamship was not the only new advantage from steam technology. Land power was yet another area of development, and would in time eclipse a steamboat in economic importance for much of the country. The development of the railroad goes back very early in the science of steam power, and the story is sufficiently complicated that I won't even attempt to repeat it here. Suffice it to say that rail technology is a simple concept, but translating that into something economically more useful than just moving your coal or a couple miles, well, that took a great many years of development. The United States trailed Great Britain in this race, but both outpaced almost any other rival. In both countries, significant improvements emerged from development year after year following about 1830, when the invention first became really practical for most uses. Nonetheless, the railroad technology itself was not very different than what we know today, a mighty engine driving iron wheels, pulling the freighter of passenger cars behind. In the United States specifically, 
a massive rail boom began, as stated in the 1830s. Unlike canals, rail could go almost anywhere and at a much higher rate of speed. As technology improved year over year, and improved rapidly at that, costs for rail freight plummeted. Overland travel by rail became as efficient as sea travel for heavy goods, and was even more convenient for passengers. Then it surpassed ships altogether, except for the heaviest and bulkiest commodities. Some of the canals and river routes, which had blown traditional transportation options quite literally out of the water, themselves faced economic hardship a mere decade or so after launching. However, even with the incredible expansion of rail, most canal routes found and retained a niche as the population of the young United States boomed, but almost overnight went from cutting-edge solutions to the technology of last century. Past the qualitative comparison of rail versus river, we should look at the quantitative side. The rail expansion of the United States was indeed incredible. The United States laid rail so fast that by the time of the Civil War, it had more than half of the entire world's rail mileage. That awesome growth would only be slightly interrupted by the Civil War itself, and it quickly connected the country together. Unfortunately, while the growth was national, the systems it created were not yet national. Few railways stretched over the Appalachian Mountains, so that local and regional systems were often well-connected, with rather large gaps remaining untouched by the railway empire. And especially in the American South, we find major unconnected areas in that network. Now, I don't want to emphasize this too much, because the southern states as a whole were still well-connected by rail compared to literally anywhere else on Earth except, you know, the northern states or England, and certainly not even all of the latter. Having very good river and sea access in most areas, it was not as dependent on rail in the first place. Cotton, sugar, and tobacco are dry commodities which don't rot easily, and that combination meant that many of the large plantations and cities even preferred the river and ocean trade to rail, at least initially. Quite often, water transportation was simply the less expensive alternative, plus anyone on the river could put up their own dock. As a region, the South actually placed second in overall mileage, but it had a far less dense network compared to the Northeast and Midwest. The sheer amount of ground to cover and numerous river crossings, some of which were, and still are, long and expensive to bridge, made the rail network very spread out. Farmers in Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana were usually within some miles of a railroad, at least within a day's trip. In the South, a similar farmer might need to trek across several counties to gain access. Hence, at the time of the war, the South had good water access, but many fewer rail resources. Also, as mentioned, several areas had not yet been connected together, so many rail trips were literally impossible. Most of central Alabama, for example, was still in the process of completing and connecting a rail network to Vicksburg. Texas and Arkansas were almost not connected at all, despite having some local lines. Still, Virginia had a rail network comparable to any place in the north, and all the major cities of the eastern seaboard had some kind of rail connection. This lack of rail density probably occurred in part because of slavery, although geography and finance undoubtedly played into that as well. The lack of cities and free farm communities internally in much of that country limited the commercial opportunities available for railways, and the planners were not about to be taxed heavily for infrastructure they wouldn't or couldn't use. Additionally, one other feature of the system would become very important later on. 
the rail system in the southern states only connected with the Northeast and Midwest in about four railways. Three of these ran through Tennessee, one each in the western, central, and eastern portions of the state. That eastern railroad connected up through Virginia, which also controlled access southward from Washington into the Carolinas. This will all end up more than a little important during the war years. To be clear, these railroads were not nearly as efficient as people might imagine based on modern experience. Even the nicest passenger trains were frequently noisy, dirty, not especially comfortable given the rattle and bounce of the train, and prone to irregular and extensive delays. Yet they were far faster than anything imagined before them, and offered far more convenient opportunities for travel. Travel times within the United States in 1800 might have been measured in weeks. By 1860, similar trips were measured in days or even mere hours. Suddenly, people were visiting relatives a hundred miles away purely for the joy of it, with tons of farm produce and manufactured goods snugly riding in the freight cars behind. Travel had gone from an expensive economic necessity to a casual aspect of everyday life. One final technology went into this amazing growth story, however, and that one is easily overlooked because it is, quite literally, beneath us. Roads. Now, I did promise that Fulton was involved with another issue regarding canals earlier, and here's the other side of where that ties back in. Not with technology or business, but with law. And specifically, the laws that concern road access. Not only was Fulton appointed to the New York Canal Commission, after having publicly supported the project's development in a series of letters, but he also ended up with a state monopoly on certain services for the Erie Canal and its transportation. Now this turned into a major bone of contention in the burgeoning transportation market because it sparked resentment in all those cut out of the picture. As often happens in the United States, some of these people sued, and in a spirited case, eventually succeeded in turning the, the Erie Canal into an open waterway. This precedent, supported by political leaders with a national perspective like Henry Clay, helped pave the way for national highways and transit development because it prevented states from locking up their improvements behind legal and financial barriers. This had a huge impact on the development of national roads because it blocked all of those legal barriers which might have closed them off, although it did still allow for tolls which could pay for more roads. Now, given the expense of building proper roads in this era, and that's inquired extensive clearing, careful engineering, often with hand-placed cobbles and the like, well, good roads were restricted to major economic areas. Much of the American continent had little more than dirt tracks, until a small breakthrough took place, once again, in Great Britain. In 1820, or thereabouts, one Scottish Lord Robert McAdam got very, very tired of bad roads. Born the second son of the Baron of Waterhead, McAdam made a fortune in the American Revolution acting as a merchant in British-occupied New York. Now, later on, as the war ground down, he returned to Scotland and became trustee of the Ayrshire Turnpike, which is where he got his start in road maintenance and construction. In 1816, after becoming surveyor of the Bristol Turnpike as well, he got at the chance to start putting into effect the ideas that he had been promoting in pamphlets and treatises. Much like Robert Fulton, the other inventive genius detailed in this episode, McAdam was both deeply connected with the world of published ideas and not precisely an inventor. He obviously didn't create the idea of a road. 
he created an inexpensive and reliable road. Much as Fulton didn't invent the steamship, so much as invent a practical, viable steamship. Both men turned marginal technologies into world-spanning economic transformations. McAdams' particular genius lay in using relatively common materials, such as ground-up stones, in simple ways to create a road that worked in all weather for a variety of vehicles then in use and could be constructed and maintained at a reasonable cost. It resembled the roads we use today in having a couple layers and a relatively smooth surface, as well as being close to level, just sloped enough to allow runoff. Yet it saved money by skipping the complex layers that most roads used at that time. The design would further be improved by using a slurry of water and dust to create a smoother, hard, compact surface. Basically, McAdam invented a type of gravel road, but a surprisingly high-quality one that remained quick to construct. This brand of road-building technology arrived in the United States within a matter of years, and expanded across the country equally rapidly. Thus did America finally have a good, all-weather, last-mile connection, uniting the country from house to house, from Maine to the Mississippi. Macadamized roads, in fact, are still in use today, and modern highway design is in many cases not that much more complex than a macadamized road covered in asphalt or concrete. However, as with railroads, these would remain much more common in the North, where stronger state governments were more willing to invest in infrastructure. We should consider, too, how these major inventions work in tandem. Any of the individual portions of the transportation revolution would have been grand improvements on their own. But taken together, they formed the backbone of the global economy, not just of its own day, but in ours as well. For all our modern reliance on computers, we could not support modern society without the humble road, canal, and rail systems developed and implemented in the early 19th century. After all, Everything is built on our ability to move goods and services rapidly to where they are needed. Once we get into the Civil War experience as well, we will see that the presence or absence of these transportation features will shape the course of campaigns in a way that simply doesn't take place in the Napoleonic Wars or the Mexican-American War. By the 1840s, these changes had only begun to reshape the American world. By 1860s, they had completely transformed the physical environment with concomitant transformation of the cultural life of the nation. And in a more universal sense, these changes feed directly into the growth of the manufacturing economy, which by an amazing coincidence happens to be the subject of our next episode. So please join us next time for an investigation of how the transportation revolution created the economic boom of the century and beyond.